Ah, uh, no. Ah, cables. Honestly. Poor cable management. Okay. Really. Yes. We'll edit that bit out. Maybe. Maybe not. <laughs> we'll see what the intern has to say. It's actually live. <laughs> it's actually, this is Radio New Zealand. And you're dead, if that's the case. <laughs> David Cunliffe remains about as popular in the Labour caucus as a pussycat at Gareth Morgan's house. Look, this is a la-la budget. When my eyebrow goes up, it's a joke. Police still arrest criminals in New Zealand. We've tried cannabis prohibition for the past 40 years. The fact is, that was a boring, useless speech. Hello and welcome back to the Andrew Podcast, your weekly recap of all things policy and politics, where we run you through our peaks and our pits, interesting bits, and anything that fits from Aotearoa and around the globe. I'm Maddie Burgess-Smith and with me is Principal Consultant Byron Terrace. Hello and welcome back to yet another week of the Andrew Podcast. This week... We are talking about let's get Wellington, um, that word that it just hasn't done yet, moving, that's right. Also going to cover off some issues in the DHB and healthcare system. And we're talking about terrible things like fentanyl with a big capital F because that's horrible. And the Wellington Merrill race. Maddie, kick us off. Yeah, look, I want to talk about Paul Eagle finally coming out of the closet and saying that he wants to be Mayor of Wellington. Paul said that he's going to take leave from Parliament from the 8th of July. All of the money that he makes from being an MP, he's going to donate to charity. So if you're a charity, give him a call. Awesome. I didn't actually know this, but Paul Eagle is the former Deputy Mayor of Wellington. Look, he said his policy priorities are going to be water infrastructure, public transport, housing, parks, and restoring the city as an arts and events capital. So literally everything... Everything is yeah, his policy everything's his priority. platform. He hasn't been off to a great start. He's had a couple of scandals already. He put out a survey whilst he was the MP that essentially allowed him to kind of comb through policy ideas and mm. get a bit of a feeling of the electorate. Yeah. And then had that little bit that of a, a bit naughty. Yeah, a little bit of a billboard scandal already. But hey, I still feel like it's a one horse race. Paul's running as an independent. He's been endorsed by the Labour Party. Okay. Yeah, that's a bit of that. Come on, that's a bit of a joke. But he's spicy, a Labour yeah. Party MP, yeah. and he's saying I'm running as an independent. Yeah. For goodness' sake, mate, just be honest about it and say you're the Labour candidate. Yep. What's your Wellington news of the week? Well, look, you know, Paul used to be a councillor with a lot of opinions, and one of those was that cycleways alone cannot solve Wellington's transport woes. My peak of the week is Wellington's transport woes will continue indefinitely under the Let's Get Wellington Moving program. This week, Michael Wood, the Minister of Brill Cream and Transport, decided to announce that one day a decision will be made on perhaps having, maybe, maybe not, light rail or bus rapid transport. We may or may not get some tunnels. What's bus rapid transport? Oh, it's super fast buses that go normal buses. They're normal buses. So why do, why do we rebrand them to sound like they're better than they already are? Because, Maddie, the tagline, the dollar amount tagged to this is $6.4 billion. And doesn't that sound good? I read 7.6. 7. I'm sure it's going to be more like 20.5. Look, there are billions of dollars being spent here. And if you're a politician, that is your wet dream. You just want to spend money on stuff. You don't really care what the impact is. You don't really care that our city's transport network is completely and utterly broken. You don't actually want to get anything done. You can't even agree what to do with the council. I'm going to read you an excerpt from the press release. Next, our council partners will consider and approve a preferred program in the coming days and from there will look to develop a detailed business case. This is the announcement of a potential decision to maybe write a business case. 
The reason this is my peak is because it is so fucking funny that this has been an announcement by the government. What's the point of being the government at this point? It's just a complete and utter joke. They need to stop this, start again. That's why it's been my peak, because it is just too goddamn funny. Tell us about something bad that's happened, Maddie. Well, I just want to talk about the fact that 12 people got hospitalised for fentanyl overdoses in the Wairarapa. And now this Jesus. seems like a hyperlocal issue, but the reason I want to pick it up this week is because it's really shone quite a horrific light on how ill-prepared we are for a wave of a bit of a fentanyl epidemic to hit New Zealand. So what is this fentanyl thing? Good question, Byron. It's a very dangerous synthetic opioid. So if you're familiar with The Empire of Pain, great book written on that. If you're familiar with Dope Sick, which they then made a TV show about, that's kind of what it's about. So 60,000 people last year alone Holy shit, that is, that's a, I thought I read that wrong. That's a real statistic. Yeah, it's amazing what... Uh, Holy yeah, shit. Truth is stranger than fiction sometimes. Yeah, in the US, 60,000 people last year lost their lives to fentanyl overdoses. Pretty wild, eh? And there's actually a very easy treatment for those who are experiencing a fentanyl overdose, for which we're grossly underprepared to be able to supply, and that's a treatment called naloxone. Frontline police officers in, in America always have this stuff on them. Good God. Right? Here in New Zealand... The New Zealand Drug Foundation has to donate it to the police. Oh, wow. So the issue is twofold, right? So we don't have the treatment options available to us. The second one is that we continue to run into that barrier there, which is that New Zealand has some really rigid drug laws that aren't that flexible, and they really treat drug harm and addiction as a justice issue as opposed to, well, a health issue. Yeah, exactly. That's very true. And I guarantee our health system is not actually prepared to deal with the consequences of these overdoses. If the police and the front line are prepared, I guarantee our health system isn't. My pit of the week, which is worse than the joke that is Let's Get Wellington Moving, last year, I think it was around September, the chair of the DHB collectives, the workforce committee, wrote a letter to the Ministry of Business Innovation and Employment saying we, as a collective health system, are about to have a severe worker shortage. That they wrote reach. that a year ago. They wrote that a year ago. And the reason they sent it to MB was because MB runs the immigration system. And the chairs of the DHBs, all 20 of them, signed a letter to say, we are under serious stress and we need immigration settings to change so we can attract nurses to this country and actually fully staff healthcare facilities and hospitals. It was revealed in an OIA, an Official Information Act request last week, and the Minister of Health gave one of the most remarkable answers to a shortage of labour. The answer was, that's not my ministry, so it's not my problem. Because you see, the letter was sent to MB, you know, the letter was not sent to the Ministry of Health, it was sent to the guys that run the immigration system about a health issue, not to the Ministry of Health about a health issue that's to do with labour. You see, <laughs> look, the Minister of Health had no idea, because he is not the Minister for uh, Business Innovation and Employment, so unfortunately, <laughs> it just doesn't matter, and he laughed it off. The Minister of Health did not receive communications from the DHBs to say that we are not prepared for the winter flu season next year combined with COVID. We are not prepared for a surge capacity. So I guarantee you they are not prepared for fentanyl overdoses anywhere around the country. 
what that's probably led to is some of those kind of harrowing campaigns that we've seen over the last few weeks of, hey, only call 111 if there is an emergency. Hey, if you if, don't show up to the ED, go to your GP. The health system have had to take matters into their own hands and execute media and advertising campaigns to say how horrifically under-resourced they are. Yeah. I did notice that the nurses settled their pay equity claim. Pretty dismal outcome for them as well. That was 19 months of negotiations there for what's played out to be a little over $8,000, I think. Per nurse, that's right. This isn't an attractive place to join the healthcare system. So I, I'd like to hope that Health New Zealand will put an end to a lot of those labour issues once we start to kind of centralise it and look at it in terms of a systems approach. Where are we struggling across New Zealand? Hope is a good thing. Yeah. Maybe even the best of things. If none of that worries you, nurses are kept off the New Zealand skills shortage list for migration. If you are a registered nurse and you tried to come to New Zealand to help out our beleaguered health system, you would have to meet some serious, outrageous thresholds on income, on qualifications. You'd probably have to have a PhD to be a nurse. That alone is a complete and utter disaster. And hopefully, to your point, on Friday, Health New Zealand, the new National Health Service will be established and all of these problems will go away. Our guest this week, none other than the Iron Duke himself, Phil O'Reilly. Listeners, today we're joined by the Iron Duke himself, Mr Phil O'Reilly, Managing Director of Iron Duke Partners, who has just returned from a remarkable excursion to the Northern Hemisphere. Thank you, yes, it's lovely to be back. It's just my usual set of meetings into Europe, and it's nice to be able to redo them post-COVID. So what do you mean by usual set of meetings? Well, generally speaking, the Europeans do a series of conferences at about that time of the year in the European spring. So you've got the International Labour Conference, which goes on every year in Geneva, of course. You've got the OECD ministerial meetings, which generally take place at about the same time. And you've also got this year, of course, the WTO ministerial, which doesn't take place every year, but took place at about the same time. So normally I'd have attended two of those three. In this case, I attended sort of one and a half of those three, meeting new people and uh, catching up with old friends and colleagues I hadn't seen for two and a half years uh, in many ways. So it was a big big sort of regathering and a reconnection, both a human reconnection and a business reconnection was fantastic. So after two and a half years, how did you find those relationships? What was really interesting was that we talk a bit about relational capital, the idea that any aspect of business endeavour you know, you get to know someone and you do business with them, not just because they're good to do business with, but because they're good people. And that's certainly been my experience. One of the things that you hear about is that's all fine. And then you spend two and a half years on Zoom with them. And inevitably you lose relational capital. They'll have changed their life circumstances. They'll have had a kid. They'll have got divorced. They'll have got married again. Whatever, they might have changed houses and changed jobs. And so inevitably, although you're having this conversation over Zoom and it's all good, it's two-dimensional. And you do start to lose that insight and the, all the rest that goes with it. And so a lot of what I was doing was literally walking up and hugging people, hadn't seen them for two years, two and a half years, chatting about family circumstances, just trying to get you know, whatever it might be, uh, you know, having a drink together, having a cup of coffee, whatever it was. And immediately what you found was you were back to where you were two and a half years ago, which is the nature of friendship. Yeah. But from a business perspective they were immediately much more engaged than they would have been over Zoom because, you know, you could chat about stuff and you could work off each other in a yeah. human way. So that was one of the biggest insights I had was exactly as I expected it to be. And, and the advice I've given everybody is Zoom doesn't cut it. You've got to get out and talk to people because of that very reason. Otherwise, you're going to lose that relational capital and you're not going to get it back. So that was my experience and I'll do some more of it later in the year. Pretty good. Phil, you were right in the beating heart of business in Europe. And I hate to say it again, but what were some of the big post-COVID themes you, you experienced? 
Well, certainly Ukraine is obviously a big issue for them. There's a whole bunch of things around Ukraine that matters to them. First is, of course, the massive supply chain difficulties they've got. And that plays out in all quads of weird, wonderful ways, all the way from microchips through to car parts, through to food and elements of clay. Apparently, Ukraine is a big provider of some sort of clay. You know, it's, it's a weird and wonderful thing, the nature of globalisation. But what was also interesting is it's much more visceral for them. It's much more in your face. Anybody who knows London will know there's a lot of people there with a Russian accent, and some of those Russian accents are actually Ukrainians. There's a lot of personal stories, you know, personal stories of people who've lost their properties or separated from families. And so you get a lot more of that kind of thing and the risks at the border and so on, stories about what's happening at the Polish border and all that sort of thing. So for us, we're reading it in the newspaper. For them, they're living it. Obviously, inflation is there and labour market shortages are absolutely massive everywhere you go, just like uh, New Zealand. Much more than sort of getting on with it. You know, when you talk to them, they don't talk about COVID. That's I have to talk about it for the, to start them talking about it. That doesn't mean it's not going on in the background. It is, but they're just getting on with business. And, and the normal that we see, very critically, we all talked about, you know, we're going to have a build back better or whatever it might be. And that's hopefully that plays out. But the point is they went to the normal that they wanted to get back to, which was the pre-COVID normal. They, People was, quite liked that, didn't yeah, they? Exactly right. They yeah. were getting on with life, you know, yeah. so they're travelling and so on. Actually, that was a kind of a comforting thing for me that people just get back and do the stuff they were doing previously. How are the cities? So um, are you finding that there is the same accents, the same diversity of accents in places like Geneva and London and Paris when you were there? Are you seeing tourists return? What was, what was the kind of the vibe of the tourism sector? So uh, one of the big things is I'm hearing from everybody that people are returning to offices. So that's the first point. So you're seeing rush hours look not dissimilar to what you were seeing pre-COVID in airports and so on, reasonably full. With their version of going back to the offices, inevitably, everybody will say sort of three days, four days. And that, in other words, office flexibility is now just part of what they're doing around here. And that's got a whole bunch of implications in terms of where people live and how they commute and so on, what times of the day they commute and all that sort of thing. So they're definitely that, but there's a move towards going back to the office because office work is not just about presence for work, it's also presence for this human stuff that we've talked about. Like the beer at five o'clock. Exactly right. But also, if you read anything about the nature of work, it turns out that humans have worked together physically in proximity since cavemen, since we were hunting hairy mammoths. And there's a reason for that. You want to be contributing to something bigger than you and you want to feel like that. That's the reality of it and that's human nature. So that's a bit of going back to the office. It's also, it turns out, getting away from the kids. You know? <laughs> I want to go spend time with the yeah. kids. No, no, actually, I want to, I'm sick of the kids. So there's a bit of that that goes on. There's also this big tourism issue about cities and London and Paris in particular, obviously, just absolutely heaving with tourists. I mean, tourists back with a vengeance. And you, are, you were there in the European summer. That's true, and I was there for you know, the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. I managed to avoid it. It was great. But, um, no the, mugs were bought. I learned right. this. He came back, and there were no catch I, mugs. I tried to find a tea towel. Paddington. They had run out. So tourism is just massive, and that gives me a lot of confidence about what's going to happen in New Zealand coming to the end of the year, subject, of course, to recessions and fuel prices and so on. And this is before the Chinese are back. There's no Chinese on the streets yet, and that's great still point. heaving. Second point was nightlife and entertainment matters. So this is the case in Melbourne and Sydney. They are driven much more clearly now by this tourism piece and by nighttime entertainment. So they want to attract people in, they want to make sure that people are entertained and so on. And you're seeing quite deliberate activity around that. They already had that pre-COVID. Yeah. They were already seen as entertainment centres pre-COVID. The challenge will be, will that come back in Auckland? Because mm. it's never been quite seen as a nighttime entertainment place in the same way that, say, Melbourne has. And basically, those are pretty positive yeah. Trends, and yeah. They, they feel pretty good for me coming back to New Zealand. Good. Can you tell us a bit more about the OECD? You can tell us a bit more about some of the big insights you had from your time spent there. 
The OECD, which is an acronym for the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, comes out of the World War II settlement where the Americans funded the European project uh, and as a result of that set up what became later the OECD. It's a collective of basically the developed economies around the world, about 35 countries I think are members. There's a dedicated business organisation that's pointed towards it and a dedicated trade union group that's pointed towards it since about a year after its inception. I've chaired the business group there for eight years and just rolled off my term during COVID. So I reconnected with my staff now my ex-staff in Paris, which was great to catch up with them, and spent the time actually talking to some very senior policy folk at the OECD in areas like education, trade, digital, and labour markets. These policy brains are some of the best policy brains you'll see anywhere in the world. These people are serious mm. because they're soaked into the deepest and most remarkable analysis of what's going on in the developed world. And so you get the most incredible insights and sense out of them. So what, we've, what I've done is I've gone to see them, and it's a remarkable opportunity for a New Zealander to be able to get access to all of that. It doesn't often happen. What's one policy insight that you've taken from that that you'd like to share? A really simple one, uh, would one, one that really struck me, was um, I was chatting to a bloke called Andreas Schleicher. Andreas is the head of the education directorate there, uh, and he's the guy that created PISA, this global testing series. They test students and they compare countries' ed- education performance with other countries and so on. It's a controversial thing because, of course, it sets up a bit of a a leak table, if you like, between countries and schooling systems. And New Zealand, of course, has famously been falling down those PISA rankings for a little while. So I spoke to Andreas about what had happened to schools during COVID, because, you know, we've had our own experience in New Zealand about school closures and kids still not being back at school even now. So I said, you know, was it a rich school, poor school? Was it a digital divide issue? What really made schools perform during COVID? And he said that they'd done a lot of work on that, and none of those things turned out to be accurate. In other words, it wasn't, you couldn't draw a bright red line to say a rich school did better than a poor school or a digitally enabled school did better than a non-digitally enabled school. The best kind of relevance they could draw was your PISA score. If you were a good school doing good things in education, yep. turns out you did well through COVID as well. And it just stands to reason when you think about that. Yeah, it does. You're a poor school or a rich school or a digital school or a non-digital school. If you were just a good school already doing good education, turns out you got through COVID. They tested this point with some of the students the number one indicator that you were going to turn up to school was a regular phone call from or regular communication from your school. Well, who knew? Wow. What an extraordinary insight that is. But it's true, you know. It's sensible stuff. So the good schools would ring their students or email them or whatever every day and say, are you coming to school? And they turned up and teachers were there to teach them. Yep. Now, subject, of course, to national rules and laws, of course. So it turns out that this is true of companies too. Good businesses, good schools do all sorts of things well, including covid turns out, actually, if you're a good school, you get it done anyway, and that'll be true of a lot of things. Phil, thanks so much for your insights. As is tradition on the Iron Duke podcast, and you'll be well familiar with this by now, Mm. we're going to finish you off with a bit of a hot or not. Mm. We've derived all of our questions today from your experience abroad, so Byron, kick us off. New Zealand refusing to do PISA scores over the last two years. Not, that's just outrageous. Coming back to alert level orange. Not, that's awful. And I know you love this one by how much you've spoken about this in the office. Old long-haul planes into Auckland. Oh, not. Why why couldn't I get a ding? Why couldn't I do something? That's that's outrageous. Phil, how about managing to return home without a pre-departure test? Fantastic. I wasn't sick, though. I I should just reassure everybody. Of course. I was fine. I was fine. I had a a slight sweat. It was good. (laughs) (laughs) Only a little cough. The beauty of being able to enjoy the European summer after two years stuck at home. Oh, fantastic. But of course, ding it, absolutely. But the challenge is, of course, you've got to wear a suit. 
That's that's the horrible thing. Wow. I was on the, the Friday. I was in Paris. It was like thirty nine degrees, and I had to wear a suit. And and of course in Paris, very little air conditioned. So you man, oh man, yes, that's tough. Just cigarette sweat and coffee. all that. Yeah, yeah. And lastly, not bringing your staff home any tourist knickknacks. Hot. <laughs> that was a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> you don't need any more details. <laughs> cool, Phil. Thank you so much for your time. Pleasure. Really appreciate it. Okay. Pleasure. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> I'm, st- I'm still dark. It didn't bring us anything. I was hoping for at least a tea towel. Like, that would have been all right. I wanted some cute Jubilee stuff. Yeah, the Queen and Paddington on a mug or something would have been nice. Well, listeners, we can keep dreaming. But until then, we'll, we'll see, see you next, next week. week.